0: and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Rev. Dr. Lori Walke.
1: Let us bow our heads together. We hope you've stayed off Twitter this weekend, Holy One. But you've probably heard anyway. There's some anger about the new federal holiday, Or rather, there's some anger about it being called Juneteenth National Independence Day. Big anger. The use all caps on social media kind of anger. Apparently calling Juneteenth an Independence Day is considered outrageous. But not all of us are surprised. For as Marcy Alvis Walker has pointed out, there are plenty of ways to oppress black people without breaking a sweat, joining the clan or having one's life canceled or disrupted, like saying that it can't be Juneteenth National Independence Day because July 4th is Independence Day. Perhaps this is why in Scripture James urges us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So may we be quick to listen so we can hear how the freedoms of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were handed out piecemeal or at a later date, and in some ways, not at all. May we be slow to speak so as to not perpetuate more racism, more oppression, more conspiracy theories. May we be slow to anger so that we might Be angry about what actually deserves righteous indignation, instead of mistaking accountability for persecution. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Help us, Holy One, to be the first to try it. Amen. The sermon lesson this morning comes from the book of Job, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices, and wept aloud. They tore their robes, and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. The book of Job is a narrative, a story to talk about the question people have been asking since the beginning. Why do bad things happen? We like to have reasons. We want to have explanations, insurance and insulation against tragedy. It's why when people, someone gets lung cancer, very often the first words out of our mouths are not... I'm so sorry to hear that, but were they a smoker? We forget that being a person who smokes isn't the prerequisite for lung cancer, it's being a person with lungs. Humans want reasons to explain why bad things happen to people. We'd like to think bad things happen, well, because People really aren't that good, as if being good enough will act as a protective barrier from infections or economic collapse or accidents. We hardly ever say that aloud, but we do live as if bad things only happen to bad people. If this is true, then we can relax, because unlike those heathens, we can be good enough to avoid pain and suffering. So perhaps this story, Job, is just not as holy as he seems, even though he is said to be blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Some people think this is why he, is, he was rich, and he was very, very rich. This is the prosperity gospel. But it's really not easier for rich people to be holier than now, even if it seems like they want for nothing. Um, this is the question that is asked by the tempter in the story, though. It is suggested that Job's religious devotion is dependent on dividend yield and where the stock market closes at, at the end of every day. So, what will happen if every Job loses everything? And lose everything he does? So, to recap all of chapter 1, one day, a messenger comes running up the driveway with terrible news for Job. All of Job's oxen and donkeys have been stolen, and the servants who were watching them have been killed, save the one who had escaped to tell the tale to Job. Job. And as that messenger was still speaking, another one burst in with news that fire came down from heaven, burning up all the sheep and goats, along with the servants tending them. And before that messenger could finish, another messenger came bearing news that all of the camels had been stolen. And before that news had settled, a fourth messenger came with the worst news of all. Job's children, who had gathered at the oldest sibling's house, all of them were dead, killed when a great wind caused the house to fall in on itself. There is no word for a parent whose child dies. Children without parents are orphans and a living spouse is called a widow or a widower, but no one has ever come up with a word for a parent who outlives their child. So it is not surprising to us when the text next says that Job tears his clothes, cuts off his hair, and falls to the ground. This is expected. What we do not expect is for him to say, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We do not expect that. Very often, Job is lifted up as the ultimate example of faithfulness, particularly for the lines I just read. This is how we should respond to trouble and woe. It is the most faithful way. But there are some other options, and they make sense in the context of this story and in the larger context of Scripture. It could be that Job has forgotten that lament is a faithful response to trouble. We find example after example of this in the psalms, psalms of lament, those that express grief, sorrow, complaint, and protest, in other words, psalms that make a fuss. Those kinds of psalms make up almost half of the Psalter. As theologian Brent Strawn explains, the psalmists do not reach a place of new life by means of denying They're very real, very difficult, and often very unjust circumstances, but precisely by voicing them. So maybe Job is really in denial, the first stage of grief, and he isn't ready to say anything else but what he thinks he's supposed to say. But the text doesn't footnote this for us because Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wouldn't write the five stages of grief until thousands and thousands of years later. The text tells us that the tempter goes back to heaven to say that the only reason Job hasn't yet cursed God is because Job's personal health remains intact. The theory was that if Job were to become sick, then all bets were off. So to that end, Job is suddenly afflicted by what is described as an evil disease covering his skin from his feet to the top of his head. But the human experience tells us that this development actually requires no divine intervention. The collapse of Job's health was bound to happen because, as some of us know all too well, the body keeps the score. Denying grief and profound loss has consequences. Our hearts and our bodies cannot hold themselves up under too much grief, loss, stress, and trauma. There is a limit. If we do not deal with our trauma, our trauma will deal with us. We get ulcers, we want to sleep all the time, we start having chest pains, we develop high blood pressure. Our chest is so tight it feels impossible to breathe. An entire body part or two stops working altogether. Emotional trauma seeps into our bones and changes us on a cellular level. Our bodies try desperately to tell us when we are on the brink, keep going at this pace and you'll crash and burn. Perhaps this is what Job's body was trying to tell him. His body begged him to grieve all that had been lost, to stop holding it in, to stop glossing over the total upheaval of his entire life, stop denying that things were bad. It is at this point that Job's friends show up. Now when Job's three friends heard all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home They met together to go and console and comfort him. They find him seated in the dust with a broken bit of a pot, scraping his own skin with the sharp edge of it. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. Notice that Job's friends do not immediately state their shock to Job at Job's condition. They do not tell him that he looks terrible or maybe he should put some makeup on. They do not tell him to buck up. They see their friend in the bottom of a pit, and instead of offering to throw a rescue line or attempting to pull him out, they descend into the pit to bear witness and be with their friend. They entered Job's pain and sat down to stay a while. It was a profound act of presence. Tearing one's own clothing in solidarity with someone who is hurting is an ancient cultural practice that seems rather intense to us, but we might think of it as a powerful metaphor for tearing away the armor that guards our own hearts so that we can truly show up to tenderly join in another's pain. Job's friends went to the white-hot center of Job's hurt, and no one said a word to him. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. So Notice again what they do not do. They do not try to fix it. They do not offer words of wisdom. They definitely do not give any advice. They do not attempt to patch things up with platitudes. They did this even though their silence must have been overwhelming, because Job also did not say anything. He was out of words. Theologian Dorothy Soul describes this as the first stage of suffering, mute suffering, It is a time of numbness and disorientation in which the person experiences an acute sense of helplessness. Extreme suffering turns a person inward, making communication almost impossible. But Job's friends stayed with him in the silence. They did not run from it. They did not try to fill it. They simply held vigil for seven entire days, They said nothing. It's a bit of a miracle, isn't it? We think people need us to save them with our words. That we'll be able to say just the right thing. This is true even though we rarely feel like we know the right thing to say. We think our presence is not enough, though. But we have to say something, which often leads us to say really unhelpful things, like God doesn't give us more than we can handle, or God needed another angel, or you'll meet someone new. But the most helpful thing Job's friends did was to show up and keep their mouths shut. How do we know that? Well, chapter 3 tells us that it's after these seven days of silence that Job begins to speak, begins to grieve. Their presence, their showing up, enabled Job to find the language of pain and lament. He knows someone is with him in his heartbreak, which allows him to start the healing process. Job goes from denial to silence to telling his friends where it hurts because they showed up and held space for him. Or as our beloved Doug Manning says, people in grief need the three H's. Hang around, hug them, and hush. Now I know that there are some of you, maybe all of you, that know the rest of this story. Things go sideways with Job's friends. They find their tongues, and it is not pretty. They engage in theological pontification. They have opinions about how all of this happened, why all of this happened, and what Job should do to cope. A fourth friend shows up and even claims to speak for God. Yikes. Their speeches take up 20 chapters, which are incredibly laborious to read, and include the recommendation that if Job has nothing nice to say about God, then he shouldn't say anything at all. And eventually, they insinuate that Job must have done something to deserve all this suffering. And to be fair, Job's friends had to say something at some point. Of course they did. We cannot sustain relationships through silence all the time. But what we say to one who is suffering matters a great deal. The text gives us examples of what we shouldn't say to one another, but when the time comes, what should we say to someone who is suffering? Clinical psychologist Susan Silk and mediator Barry Goldman explain that the ring theory can help us discern what to say when approaching suffering. Ring theory works like this. You draw a circle and put the name of the person who is suffering in the circle. Next, you draw a larger circle around the first one, and in that ring goes the names of the person, person's next closest to the trauma. This is often a significant other or children, and you repeat that process, and in each larger ring, put the next closest people, Parents and children before more distant relatives, intimate friends in the closer rings, less intimate friends in the farther away ones. And when you are done, you will have, as Silk and Goldman say, a kvetching order. The rule of ring theory is this, comfort in, dump out. The person in the center ring can say anything they want to anyone, Anywhere, anytime, they can complain and moan and curse the heavens and say life isn't fair and why me? And everyone else can say those things too, but only to the people in the larger rings. Think of the person's proximity to the middle circle, and if they are closer than you, use comforting phrases like this is hard. I wish things were different. I'm sorry. I love you. No dumping in advice or opinions or how hard this might be for you. Only comfort in. Dump out. This kind of work takes practice. We don't always get it right. We will say silly things to each other, things we regret, hurtful things that were said with the best of intentions but missed the mark. But this is why it is so important that we've all shown up today. The church is for getting better at showing up for one another. This is not a place of perfection, but a community of practice which explains much of our liturgy and our traditions. Perhaps you've recognized our exercising, our practicing of silence and listening in our time of community prayer when we share our joys and concerns. We invite each other to share the names and places that need to be covered in prayer, all the hurt and worry, the pain and uncertainty our needs and we do not offer back platitudes, quick fixes, or advice. We take turns naming where it hurts and then being silent so the next person can stay where it hurts. From our time in community worship, we then move into those small groups that meet on Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays, where we can share more specifically what we need in our time of trial and so that we can respond more helpfully and specifically when others tell us what they need. So let's keep practicing, friends, keep working at being present, finding out what each of us needs, all the while remembering that our sacred stories tell us that the first duty of love is to listen. It isn't to explain away, to fix, to justify, or to solve. We have so much more to offer than that.
0: Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are currently online only, premiering at 11 a.m. on Mayflower's Facebook page. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.